Bide scores! Rick Bide. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bide. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 44 of the Squid and Ultimately Fan Podcast. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimately Fan, and joining me as always, my co-host, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping today? Uh, we're doing all right. Uh, went for a little nice little, uh, I don't know, about an hour and 10-minute walk with uh, my wife, Joyce, and and then it started pouring as soon as we got home, so we timed it perfectly. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. Well, Squid, today our guest is a guy who exemplified hard work to a T, and would do whatever it took to stay in the NHL, but also help his team first and foremost. And I'm referring to Bob McGill. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you look back uh, at the 80s and the guys that he had, and Bobby wasn't the biggest guy either. I mean, he was probably about 6'1", you know, somewhere around 200 pounds or, or, you know, 190. But gosh, he was fighting guys a lot bigger than him, just like (laughs) Wendell did a few years after Bob came into the league. And, you know, it was unfortunate for him because we didn't have that many tough guys during the time that that we spent together in Toronto. And he was kind of called upon to do that. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't unfortunate. It was just that, you know, perhaps he could have been on the ice a little bit more rather than in the penalty box. But unfortunately we had him and then we had Wendell and, you know, maybe maybe a couple other guys in the seven years that I was there, and uh, you know, so that fell on the, on their heads, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the way it goes. I mean, I but again, you you just touched on it. I mean, he's one of those players you never hear a bad thing about, except being a great teammate, left it on the ice, wore the pride of the team he was playing for on his sleeve. And really, that's all you can ask for a guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Bobby was. Uh, a great team guy, great teammate. And uh, like I said, if you needed help, Bobby was there. And he was the first guy to arrive on the scene. And then he wasn't going to back down. He was going to protect everybody on the hockey club uh, to the best that he could. Well, we got, we got a few stories. I got a couple where we refresh his memory on. So we'll get into it with him in a couple of minutes. But first and foremost, on a sad note, we should take a moment to pay respects to ex-teammate of yours. Another one was not... A little bit of a surprise, but not surprising with the end result in Miroslav Fritscher, who passed a few days ago. Yeah, very unfortunate. Uh, I mean, the same age as I am. and uh, But, I mean, I saw the picture, and, and unfortunately, he, uh, whatever he was dealing with, he, he looked much, much older than his age. And uh, But, yeah, a very, very sad day when, when I, whenever a teammate – you lose a teammate that you had for uh, quite a few years. And, you know, I've gone through that quite a few times in the last few years with Greg Carrion and a few other guys that I played with, unfortunately, have passed away. Well, we're at that age where it's going to become more regular <laughs> than the irregular. And, you know, poor old Freacher, you know, he, you know, he got to be developed the demons with, you know, he lost the battle against alcohol, cost him his liver, another kidney transplant, and 
he was supposed to have been gone a couple of years ago, but he seemed to hang on and fight back. He was coaching, and then all of a sudden things just took a turn for the worse. And unfortunately, the family's the one that ends up suffering in the end with the loss. And, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, it's a life lessons for everybody involved to take a look. But he was a good guy. People didn't say too many bad things about him. Uh, he played well for Toronto, and oh, we're sorry to see him going. I know it caught a little few people off guard, and you're right. I did see that picture from him. Boy, oh, boy, he... Whew. He looked rough even in, in that picture. So yeah. Well, and you know the funny thing was is when they first came over, there was him and Peter in a check. I think we had another defenseman came over around the same time. And things weren't going so well until Harold canceled the charters that, that one year, halfway through the year, yeah. we flew uh commercial. So we had to stay overnight. So we started going out with these guys and getting to talk to them and, and kind of get in, you know, the same setting and talk yeah. about things. And yeah. then we, we were like, I think the second best team in the league in the second half, because we started to get to know one another and we started to get to trust one another. And, and then that's when these guys really came in and fit in really well into the hockey club. That's great. I mean, and, and you could see that almost at that time, the bonding. And he was one of those guys. Uh, and again, it's no surprise with guys like him and Salming and Peter and, but unfortunately, another loss in Leafland, and uh, in any way, our condolences go out to his family. Well, things looking Absolutely. a little bit better. Things looking a little bit better in Leafland. The last time we spoke, a few wins will certainly do that. Our team is still a few weeks from icing its strongest lineup, but all the signs are there for competitive postseason. Now, not only his fans, but the players as well feel good that management has put them in that position to succeed. I would imagine. Would you agree with that? I, I would have to 100% agree with that. If I, if I was on that team, I'd be sitting there thinking, okay, our general manager brought in everything that we need mm -hmm. to be successful. So now it's up to us. I mean, it, it's up to the players now. I mean, yeah. Kyle can't do anything more. I mean, he's done his part. Now it's up to the players to go out and get the job done. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes, um, you know, with the Canadian division first obviously. And, you know, if they can pull off two wins in, in that division, then they move on. I'm assuming they'll probably have to go to the U S and play somewhere else. I would think because teams aren't going to be able to come into Canada and uh, you know, so we'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, I, I, I really believe if I was a member of that team right now, I'd be pretty pumped and I would be psyched because my general manager went out and did what he needed to do in order to put us in a good position. Well, that's all you can ask for as a player, as we just said, and I don't want to repeat myself, but you suffered through years where they just tried to plug, plug a shipping, a sinking ship with a Band-Aid. Players aren't <laughs> stupid. I mean, they, they, they can see what's going on if there's an effort being made or they're just, you know, just going through the motions. And as Wendell Clark said to us last week, we, were, we knew we were never going to win with Harold as a leader and in charge, but it never and never handed on the players to stop trying, but it must have been extremely frustrating. Very, very frustrating. And uh, I, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you do go out and do your job, but yes, I mean, to think that the people above that are making the decisions are not really doing the right thing and do making the right decisions is kind of frustrating. And, and every day, you know, the losses mount up and, the, uh, the inability to win in the playoffs and get by that second round was very frustrating. But 
you know, there, there isn't much that we could do about it because we weren't given anything, you know, we weren't put in a position by our general manager late in the season after the deadline that put us in a position where we could have success. So, I mean, it is what it is. You look back and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was frustrating, but at the same time, you got to do your job. Well, we don't want to make any bold predictions or anything like that because that's not right because a lot of things can happen. And as you can see, any championship team, everything has to go right. Luck has to fall your way. You have to have puck luck. All those things all have to work. But it's a good start that management has put the Toronto Hockey Club in that position. Now it's up to the players and all that the chips fall where they will. They hopefully will enjoy some success. Now, speaking of success, we're going to cheat a little bit here today, Squid, because we're going to move from our usual date. Today's May the 1st, when everybody's hearing this. So we're going to cheat and move a day to May the 2nd, because on that day in 1967, I think you know what's coming, Toronto beat Montreal 3-1 in game six of the finals, which I think five-year-old kids know by now, to become the 1967 Stanley Cup champions. Let's put this twist on it. In the last Stanley Cup series among the original six NHL teams, we won't mention this the last time at least one. We'll just use that other angle, but the original six teams playing against each other. <laughs> so. You can look at it a lot of different ways. But, uh, the bottom line is, is 1967 was the last year that the Maple Leafs won the Cup. So yes. um, let's hope that perhaps that ends this year or, or in the near future. Uh, yes. I see good things you know, coming on the horizon. I, I really do. That's what I agree with you. And uh, we just... But as we say, everything has to go right. Anyway, it looks like we're off to a good start. Speaking of a good start, after our good opening here, we haven't offended anybody, we hope. I think it's time we should maybe go and have a listen to Uncle Bobby. <laughs> or Big Daddy, as they call him. Big Daddy, or McGilla. Big Daddy, yeah. Squid, our guest today was taken 26 overall by the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1980 draft. Would enjoy a 15-year NHL career. Was known as a fierce competitor who always put his team first. Today, you can hear him on Leafs TV covering Leafs and the Marlies. Well, the Marlies sometimes anyway. Welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Podcast. Bob McGill. Bobby, how are we keeping? I'm terrific, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, we're doing okay. I had about an hour and 10, uh, an hour and 10 minute walk with Joyce. And uh, I tell you, she walked pretty quick. So I had a little sweat going. Well, that's good. <laughs> That's good. That'll keep you healthy there, Ricky. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mary and I do a lot of walking too. We try to get out every day as well, for sure. Yeah. Uh, been busy, but obviously uh, with the four grandkids, uh, try to get to see them as much as we can, but uh, obviously not so much with uh, what's going on with the big lockdown here in Ontario right now. Well, I got uh, a script. Maybe Debbie and uh, Joyce should hook up because I'm chasing her around now every walk we go on to for a couple miles. So uh, it's it's not fair to us old guys. Now, uh, Bobby, uh, one of the things before we get started on this, one of the things Squid and I love are the nicknames. You had a couple of them. Like, I, well, I'm not going to say them. I'll let you go through them. But who laid some of them on you? Like, I've heard Magilla, Big Daddy. And how did those come about? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I think of my first year guys are like, I think it was Wolf Paymont called me Magilla, Magilla Gorilla or whatever. But, um, uh, but uh, I mean, obviously the one that is, uh, has stayed with me the longest yeah. and uh, still today is Big Daddy. And uh, I actually, it was funny because I got that when I was playing in the American League in this with St. Catherine Saints. And uh 
uh, I was playing with a guy called Mark Magnum and uh, he uh, was reading a book about this guy and his name was Big Daddy Lipskin. He played in the NFL and uh, he, they said he was the toughest guy in the NFL. And uh, I got in a fight, I think it was like three games in a row. And I think the third one was like, say with two minutes left in the second period. So we went off to the dressing room after the fight. And when he came in after the period, he comes in and he was just like, Big Daddy McGill. And he started laughing. And and then for the next four or five days, every time he saw me, he'd go, Big Daddy McGill. And he'd start laughing. And it just kind of stuck from there. And uh, and it's uh, it's been a handle I've had for many years now. So I'm not going to lose it, I'm sure. Well, a lot of your ex-teammates call you all the time because we've had Wendell and Russ and Lehman and all these guys on, and they always refer to Big Dad, and we always have to remind the listeners, Big Daddy, by the way, is Bob McGill. Yep. <laughs> Boys still love you affectionately at that name. Um, first off, let's just go back to the beginning. Let's just talk about your early career leading up to Abbotsford, playing in the BCHL, then eventually landing with the Victoria Cougars and how that all came about. Well, I mean, uh, out west, uh, we didn't have the draft like uh, they do in uh, in the Ontario Hockey League and stuff back in those days. Uh, but uh, they had a protected list. And I have an older brother, two years older than me, and uh, yeah, he was uh, property of the New Westminster Bruins, uh, mm -hmm. the Big Bad Bruins. And uh, uh, they put me on their list as well when I was 15 years of age. And then uh, I went to actually their training camp and uh, – um, I came back home because my brother was playing in Abbotsford, uh, which was New Westminster's uh, tier two farm team. And uh, during the course of the winter, um, they actually took me off their list uh, to add somebody that they wanted to. And Victoria put me on their list. Uh, so now all of a sudden uh, I get informed that I'm now property of the Victoria Cougars. And uh, I wanted to, to be a New Westminster Bruin because they had won back-to-back -back Memorial Cups and, you know, the, the storied franchise that they were and, and whatnot. And my brother was part of them and played for them as well. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, after my, my midget year, um, the, they came to me and said, hey, if you want to go to New Westminster, we'll let you go, but we'd really like you to come to Victoria. And uh, I decided, you know what, I want to go, I'm going to go to Victoria because, uh, and it turned out very well because uh, I went there after playing a year in Abbotsford. I, I played a year in Abbotsford and I played a little bit with my brother. He, he played a few games and then went up to New Westminster Bruins. Uh, but uh, their team was on the decline and uh, they had a big brawl the one year and a bunch of guys were suspended going into the next year. So uh, I thought maybe it'd be better to go to Victoria and uh, it turned out very well because I played against my brother my first year. He was 19, I was 17. And, uh, you know, we ended up uh, going to the league finals and uh, they didn't even they didn't even make the playoffs. And then the next year we went to the Memorial Cup and uh, my my team in Victoria. Uh, actually, it's quite c c quite funny that we're talking about this today. I got it. It was my birthday yesterday and an old teammate of mine from Victoria sent me a birthday wish and said, yeah, it's hard to believe it's 40 years ago that we were together Ooh. in Victoria. And our record still stands today. Uh, the CHL record for most victories, the 1980-81 Victoria Cougars, we were 60-11-1. And, and those 60 victories still stand as the CHL record today, 40 years later. Wow. Wow. I got a record, too. I got a record as a coach for the least amount of wins with three. So, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Bobby, the late 70s and early 80s was still a hangover, the rough and tumble days of the Broad Street Bullies, which we're all aware of. Did you consciously make a point to be aggressive in junior? Because toughness was a prerequisite in those days for anybody wanting to advance their careers. I mean, look at Squid. 78-70, unknown to lead the Bulls in scoring, but he led them in penalty minutes as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mike. Uh, um, I went to Abbotsford, and obviously my brother had played there uh, for the year before, and and, and uh, two years actually played two years in Abbotsford before I went there, yeah. and uh, uh, and it's you know he had a bunch of penalty minutes and whatever, and I had only had had one fight in hockey uh, before I went to Abbotsford, so here I am at 16 years of age, and uh, uh, and you know you know thinking oh I'm, I'm going to play physical and do this and that, and, and my brother was kind of a fighter, so I'm going to try and do that too, and. Uh, I think I had 242 penalty minutes in 47 games or something. And, uh, you know, next that 16 years old, you're going in and you're next thing you know, you're fighting 19 and 20 year old guys. And you're like, Holy crap, man, what am I doing? But uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I ended up where yeah, I was pretty good at it. And it's like, Hey, this is kind of fun, you know? And, and uh, so when I went to Victoria the next year, uh, I was, you know, going to try to establish myself as that physical guy. And uh, I think I had, uh, 230 penalty minutes my first year there and and I got drafted by the Maple Leafs and uh, so then it was kind of uh, when I my 19 year old year when I went to training camp in Toronto uh, you know I, I made the team uh, primarily because uh, I think uh, through preseason and stuff I think I had seven or eight fights and uh, uh, the last one being fighting Larry Playfair in Buffalo and uh uh, I think that was something where they decided, you know what, I think we might hang on to this kid. So uh, it certainly helped me uh, get to the National Hockey League without a doubt. Uh, yeah. But to stay there, uh, you had to learn to play the game as well. And, uh, you know, it took me, uh, you know, uh, some stints where I got sent down to the American Hockey League halfway through year number two and spent the rest of the year there. And then the next year I spent pretty much most of the year in the American League again mm -hmm. and then got called up at the trade deadline. And then uh, spent the rest of my the next like 11 plus years in the National Hockey League. So uh, I think that that stint in the AHL was probably the best thing that ever happened to me uh, because I got a chance to play in every situation and uh, showed that and got my confidence in, in my abilities that not only could I hold my own as far as fights were concerned, uh, I could play the game as well. Squid. Well, we don't we don't hear anybody admitting that very often. I can assure you of that. I mean, but but you know, it's funny because I see players coming into the league so young, and and sometimes it probably the best thing for an NHL team to do would be to send them back to junior hockey, and everybody would say, well, yeah, but he's going to be the best player in junior hockey. And I said, what's wrong with that? Like if you're the best player, you're gonna you're gonna gain confidence in your ability to play the game, and then when you come to the national league, you're gonna be full of confidence. Yep. Everybody says, "Yeah, but that's not gonna make him a better player." I said, "Well, how can I not?" So I, I think that's that that was very good. Uh, that the fact that you mentioned that because we don't hear too many guys saying that they benefited from going to the minors or back to junior and beca and becoming a, a good player there which catapulted them to the National Hockey League career. Well, and you know, Ricky, it's interesting because uh, when I went down to St. Catharines that second year, when I went back from the beginning of the year, Gary LaRiviere joined our team. 
And I think that uh, Bims, uh, you know, who ended up being an assistant coach down the road uh, years, years after, right? Uh, but he was down there. He was a veteran guy. He lived in St. Catharines, and they talked him into coming and playing there. And I'll tell you, he helped me so much uh, in just talking to me daily and working on some different things and whatever. And I mean, he was certainly instrumental in, in helping me get my game to another level and get back to the National Hockey League. And, and I, I agree with you too, with some of these kids, because you look at some of these first round picks that, uh, you know, find themselves playing in the NHL and they look like they are, they got their, uh, they got the, their eyes are like deer in the headlights, right? Because they're lost and they, yeah. then they lose their confidence and they have a real hard time getting back on track and being the kind of player that everybody expects them to be. Well, what I was going to say to you was, um, Bobby, I was going back, you touched on a lot of stuff I was going to ask you is the fact that when the Leafs were the Leafs took you, were you aware of their situation at the time going into camp? And obviously you must have been aware they drafted four players along with you in 80. So let's just take that one step further. You have a decent camp. You fight your way through the camp and make some good impressions. You go back to junior to come back. But then the next year, they draft another four guys on defense, including Jim Benning. Yeah. So how was your mental awareness and, you know, how to you prepare yourself knowing all of that going through your head? Well, you know, Mike, it's interesting because when I, you know, go into training camp, I mean, obviously, you know, spending that, that year back in junior and uh, you go on as, and playing on that Victoria Cougars team, which, you know, I mean, was the funnest year I ever had in my life playing hockey because, you know, out West, we lived on the, on the West coast and you'd do those Eastern swings twice. Right. And I mean, you'd be like 11 games, 12 games to go out East and do the tour. And I mean, you'd have teams that would go on those trips and they would be like, you know, they, if they weren't a very good team, they'd just get pummeled. Right. Well, we'd go on that. We'd be like nine and two, 10 and one, the things like that. We had a ball because we had so much fun because we had such a great team. And, and, and then, uh, you know, obviously we went to the Memorial Cup and we, we didn't fare well there at all. We didn't play well at the Memorial Cup, so we didn't end up uh, with any hardware. But um, I think going into the next year, I felt the confidence in my game yeah. and uh, uh, and knowing that uh, going to training camp, hey, I was going to. I was going to prove that, that, uh, you know, I'm a tough guy and I can play. And we had rookie camp that year and it was in St. Catharines. And uh, uh, it was like, they had every guy who played in the minors and, or was a free agent who didn't play in the national hockey league. They were uh, at that rookie camp. Well, I'll tell you the first two days, the safest thing on the ice was the puck. <laughs> because it was like a battle Royal. Like it was like every, every, like every time you turn there was another fight and guys were it was they're trying to prove themselves well it was a week of camp twice a day remember you remember those days hey eh, ricky twice a day two scrimmages oh, yeah. two bag skates i mean it was like plus in that in that first week i think before i got to the main training camp i think i had eight or nine fights like oh, it was like ridiculous <laughs> and, and, and obviously I fared pretty well. And then, and then the preseason comes once training camp gets going and uh, you know, I did it again during the, the preseason. So, I mean, I went there on a mission to show that. And, and you know what, when you're a tough guy, you think that you're the toughest thing since sliced bread. Right. And uh, I mean, you weren't going to tell me there was, there was nobody, I wasn't scared of anybody. I was like, Hey, I'm, I am the man I'm going to take on whoever. And, uh, 
uh, certainly it, it helped pay mm -hmm. off and, and got me to the National Hockey League, as I said. Great. Well, speaking of that, Bobby, what I said earlier, like now you, you came in and, and obviously could hold your own in the National Hockey League as far as playing physical and, and added a lot to our defense. But then you get guys like Benning and Boinstruck and even Gary Nyland, for, for that matter, because uh, I think physically he was probably ready to play, but mentally I don't know if he was. Those are the guys I'm talking about going back to junior and becoming a little bit more confident in the way they play. But those guys had short careers because they came in, I think, way too early. Well, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, we all did. I mean, at the end of the day, I had no business being in the National Hockey League at 19 that year. You know, especially it's one thing to have one or two underage guys playing on your team but you the maple Leafs, we had three and all three on the on defense, defense. and it was on like defense, are you kidding yeah. me like or, like it was like come on anyway i mean freddie boimstruck uh hey he played three years pro and was done and yeah and jimmy and jimmy benning hey let's remember when he got drafted uh, 139 points as a junior and uh you know he never, I don't think, became the defenseman uh, that everybody thought he was going to be. And uh, but for, you know, the one thing I'll say maybe that helped me uh, get through going down to the minors and then fighting my way back to the NHL and then having a career where I, you know, I ended up playing over 700 games in the National Hockey League. I think first and foremost is I think that uh, I had uh, a Pretty, I was pretty solid mentally. I, I thought my mental toughness was uh, maybe something that set me apart, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and a lot of that with my upbringing, uh, maybe uh, with my dad, the way, uh, you know, we were, uh, you know, all brought up that uh, we were all pretty mentally tough. And I think that was something that really helped me out because Freddie, uh, you know, he was one of those kids where, you know, he went down to the minors and, and you know, played uh, the rest of that year. And then, his, and then another year, his third year, and then he was done. And it was like he walked away from the game, which was really unfortunate. And uh, again, Jimmy, I mean, obviously has made a heck of a career for himself being the general manager of the uh, Vancouver Canucks now. And, uh, you know, he's got a Stanley Cup ring from the Boston Bruins when he was assistant GM there as well. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something where I'm sure if he looked back on it, he might say, hey, you know what, it probably wouldn't have been a bad thing to to play. But again, you know, even look at this year, because this year is certainly a different year because of all the junior hockey leagues being shut down pretty much, you know, all those kids that have been drafted by NHL teams, if they're 18 or 19, they've been playing in the American hockey league this year. So they're mm -hmm. playing with men against men. So they're not the, they're not yeah. the, the, the big dog uh, playing with the, with the kids in junior. And I think maybe that's going to help. And, and it'll be interesting to see moving forward if they uh, tweak the rules a little bit, maybe with uh, some of these junior age players uh, who are on the cusp of playing in the national hockey league, or could they play in the American league? Because maybe they're maybe too much, too bad, too, too, too good for junior. I don't know. Well, there, that, that agreement is over between the National League and the CHL. Um, and they gotta, they gotta do another one. And there's a lot of talk because if you're from Europe, you can play in the, in the American yeah. League at 18 or 19. Yeah. But if you're American or you're Canadian, you can't, which I think is ridiculous. So they're gonna have a, a, a long conversation about that, I'm sure. Yes. There might be some, there might be some, some words in there that, you know, like in other words, like, uh, the guy has to play a certain amount of 
junior games and has to, you know, there's yeah. got to, there's going to be some rules yes, as to who can play in the American league at 18 or 19 or not, because junior hockey just aren't going to let their best players take off and go play in the American league. I'm sure there's going to be some certain rules that you have to achieve certain things in order to get that status. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure, uh, because you don't want to ruin, you know, the, 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 the CHL. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, fans of junior hockey uh, would, would certainly be deprived of uh, watching some big name players without question. So, it, and, you know, and it's not for everybody, right? Because even some kids, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, because most kids are coming in playing at 16. So they play at 16 and 17, they get drafted and then they play at 18. At 19, if you've played three full years of major junior, maybe you can take that step and go to the American Hockey League. So, I, you know, because they're that much, they've, they've, they've given you three full years already. So maybe, uh, you know, if they've established themselves as a dominant uh, CHL player uh, and then they've, uh, you know, got a chance to move up to go to the American Hockey League, maybe that'll be the case. But as you say, I think that'll be an interesting uh, off-season uh, mm -hmm. for uh, both the National Hockey League and the CHL and the American Hockey League to come, come, come to some agreement for sure. Well, you as a young guy, Bobby, coming up at that time and you're 19 and you're going to make the hockey cup. So here's two parts of this question for you. Were you at any given time getting any kind of instruction, direction or encouragement from management or coaching uh, through the, through all of this? Some of the vets, were they helping you out? And then the fact to have you adjust to the, you three young guys starting on the back end of the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey club. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you look for your, to your teammates, right? I mean, for, for mm -hmm. guidance and whatever. And, and, and that's one thing. I mean, I know that as a, as a young kid come in, Hey, they, the, the veterans were all really good as far as, you know, trying to take you under their wing and help you out and, and do different things. No question about it. And then I, I, I felt the same way as I moved along in my career as well, where, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, helping the young guys. And I mean, I remember guys coming up to me saying, Hey, what are you doing? That kid's trying to take your job. Right. And it's like, Hey, it's part of the duty of what we do of being players of, yeah. Hey, when young kids come in, uh, you should help them out to help them acclimate to the game and teach them some stuff to try and help them along and whatever. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I had that for sure. I mean, we had some older guys uh, on the team when I started, I mean, Dan Maloney's Daryl Sittler was, was there when I started my first year. And I mean, Wolf Paymore around Boria, uh, no question Boria. about it. Uh, I mean, Donnie Luce, Rennie Robert, like different guys. So, I mean, it, it was, it was a good group that way. Uh, but as far as being thrown into the fire, I mean, Hey, uh, learning how to play defense in the national hockey league. I, I tell you today, uh, most young players uh, as a defenseman, I give a kid about 300 games to get his legs underneath him to prove that he is a true National Hockey League defenseman. And uh, to get thrown in the fire by th trying to throw three of us in there, I mean, it was like feeding us to the wolves, man. It was like, come on. And it was, uh, it was just one of those situations where, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, uh, but, uh, you know, Mr. Ballard, uh, God love him because he was a he was a you know I quite enjoyed Mr. Ballard he was you know he was uh, one of those guys that uh, whatever but then he was also one of those guys that make made you shake your head with uh, some of the things that he did as well so uh, the management part uh, maybe they they didn't have quite probably the direction they would have liked and uh, uh, you know to throw 
those kids into the fire. I mean, hey, it was uh, it was a tough thing. Hey, I never played my first playoff game in the National Hockey League till my till my fifth year pro, and uh, and because uh, you know the state of the of the of the franchise uh, certainly wasn't where it needed to be to throw these young kids into a lineup. I I agree with that 100, percent and uh, and that was a problem. Was it? You know, I mean, it, you can get by with by throwing one guy in, maybe a defenseman and maybe a forward or a young guy, you know, like, a, but to put three defensemen on a team like that, that were weak defensively as a, as a team yep. and very little structure into how we played, like as far as four check, as far as in our own zone. I mean, we really didn't have that much direction on what the hell to do out there. And I mean, to make matters worse, then you throw three 19 year olds, on the blue line or 18 year olds. Yeah, Jimmy was only that's 18. pretty difficult. You're asking, you're asking a lot from those guys. And I'm sorry, but you know, I think that's asking way, way too much. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, Bobby, okay, just along those lines, what was the biggest adjustment for you going from junior to the pros? Well, I mean, just I mean, besides the size and the speed. And this well, I, I mean, I guess the big the biggest thing too is like, hey. Uh, you know, at 16, 17, and 18, you're living with a billet family. And, yes. you know, uh, you're, of they, they wash your clothes, they feed you every day. And, and I mean, I was very fortunate too. my first year uh, in Abbotsford, I had, I, I lived it with a family, they lived right at the back of the parking lot of the arena. So it was like, I could look out the window, see if anyone was at the rink. And so it was fantastic, right? And then my two years, uh, the year that I lived in Abbotsford, uh, my guy that I lived with on the team, Randy Wickware was his name, his, he was from Victoria. So guess what? When I went to Victoria, uh, his mom and dad said, hey, we want you to come and live with us uh, because their son went on, played for New Westminster Bruins. And, uh, and so we played against each other. And, uh, and I still, uh, to this day, get Christmas card from my old billet. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Wickware. And uh, so, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you go to Toronto, you're 19 years old. Uh, you, you're, they're told to go get an apartment and uh, uh, find your, find your, your, some furniture and whatever. And, and uh, Bob's your uncle, right? You're on your own. And uh, needless to say, uh, didn't eat very well. Didn't, uh, didn't do, you know, I mean, it was just like, I mean, the biggest adjustment obviously is being 19 and, you know, never paid a bill in my life, never done anything, whatever. Right. And, and all of a sudden, uh, here you go, you're on your own big boy. And uh, it's a huge, huge uh, adjustment without question. And uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a, there's a reason why uh, I ended up in the American hockey league halfway through my second year too, because uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, I like to have some fun. Right. And, of course. Uh, and uh, obviously uh, that didn't help along the way. And uh, plus team wasn't doing so well. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, my game went, went in the wrong direction. And if I found myself in the American hockey league, and as I said earlier, though, it was a blessing in disguise because it was probably the best thing that happened to me. Squid, you can add to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I go to Birmingham, I'm 19 years old. And I mean, like, I don't think people understand how hard it is to, to adjust to the lifestyle when, when like, like Bobby said, you're living with families all the way along and everything. And then I go to Birmingham and I'm now, fortunately we had six of us that were 19, 
but the rest of the team were all old, older guys. And I mean, it was, it was lunch every day across the street, the place across the street from the civic center, it was called. It was a bar, a restaurant that was owned by a guy from Canada, as a matter of fact. Anyway, we spent a little bit too much time there, I think. Mean. But, uh, uh, but it, you know what? The good part was I kind of learned what it was like to live on my own early when I was 19 in a different league before I came to the National League. Kind of like almost like being in the, in the minors for a year. Okay, well, uh, well, Squid, you missed your, your cue. You're supposed to ask Bobby. This is the question he, he likes to always ask the players. If there was a special a moment or uh, an event or a game that occurred where you finally sat back and thought to yourself, I've made it. Now, before you answer, I've said this to you before, but there's one incident, and I think I'll remember as soon as I start telling this story that I've mentioned this to you, that stood out for me that said, this kid has arrived. Was you guys were playing Detroit one night at the gardens and Squid, you would have been there. As usual, Norris division battle, a skirmish around your bench occurred. That's a shocker, of course. And Rob Hobart, another shocker, he was involved. And he all of a sudden challenged the whole bench. And everybody just stood there. You put, took your glove off, your helmet, put it down on the ice, and skated around the circle and challenged him to a fight and fought him. You remember that night? Well, you know what? That was actually, it wasn't Detroit. That was, was when we had the brawl against St. Louis. Oh, St. Louis. Sorry. And I it was, was Dwight Schofield. You're uh, right. That's who it was. Whatever. And You're right. Yeah. And I jumped up and threw my helmet down and we skated around. And that was the year. Uh, it was a tough year. Ricky, uh, we finished last in the National Hockey League. And uh, uh, we... Uh, but we beat St. Louis after that brawl. And then when the brawl, that kind of ended the whole brawl when I fought Schofield at the end of it. That's what and, uh, and we, we got gathered around and cheered. It was like, we won the Stanley cup. It was like crazy, <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, it was uh, quite, quite a time, no doubt about it. But uh, you know, uh, I just think that uh, over my career, I mean, uh, seeing, different things and I mean you know Ricky's part of a couple of the, the things too like uh, you know just that I remember when we you know he scored his 50 50th goal that first time I was I was there to witness it and I'll tell you it was uh, it was like mayhem at Maple Leaf Gardens man it was like crazy it was so much fun and uh, and uh, I, you know I guess the other thing would be just, you know what, when you score your first NHL goal, you only get one, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, I grew up in Leduc, Alberta, just outside of Edmonton and uh, going in to play the Oilers, obviously. And I think it was probably my eighth or ninth game in my NHL career. And uh, uh, we were down one nothing early in the game. And uh, then we're down two nothing. And I take a penalty and I get pissed at the ref and I, I, I chirp the ref and he gives me an extra two. So now I'm sitting in the box for four minutes. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, you can't score. They can't score. Cause it's three, nothing. I'm not going to play another shift. I've got all my friends, family and rel, you know, just everybody there to see me play my first NHL game in Edmonton. And as the penalty is expiring, uh, they try to make one more pass across cross and somebody dives and tips the puck. I step out of the penalty box. I get a clear cut breakaway from the center line in. I, it was such a clear cut breakaway. I never took a stride from the blue line in. And I look up and I got Grant Fuhrer, who was my gold teammate for the last two years playing in Victoria. And I put it in and score my first NHL goal. And uh, it was uh, probably the, the most unbelievable feeling because, uh, 
you know, the, the place is quiet, but there's people going nuts because it was all my family and friends and stuff. Uh, uh, you could hear them through the building uh, that I scored my first NHL goal. So it was a pretty cool feeling. Go to a hero. Squid. <laughs> now, we, we always talk about pranksters and stuff like that. And I know that, uh, well, I'll let you describe the one that was pulled on you in Chicago. Oh, yeah. When nice. we arrived in the middle of the, or whatever, two o'clock in the morning was, or something. It was, well, it was the last year that I, that, that we were together in Chicago, actually, Ricky, uh, because we got traded together the next September. Yeah. But it was the second, it was the last home game of the year, and we're playing Chicago yeah. at Maple Leaf Gardens. We win and we, we, we get our ticket punched to the Stanley Cup playoffs. So we go back for game number 80 in Chicago the next night. And we get on air putt-putt and we fly from Toronto to Chicago. We get in, it's like two o'clock in the morning. And uh, I go back and I get at the very back of the bus and it's like, I'm tired. So I sit at the very back row where it's got the three seats. I put my feet up and I lay down on the seat and we get to the hotel. We used to stay at the old Drake Hotel, downtown Chicago. And uh, well, the guys notice I'm sleeping and they all like go, oh. so they all get off the freaking bus and I'm sleeping. Well, like, I don't know. And all of a sudden I, I kind of wake up and I look around and I'm in some big warehouse thing and I hear a clunk, clunk. And it's like, I come walking out of the bus. Well, the driver almost crapped his pants because he didn't know anyone was on the bus. But he said, you're so lucky because another minute later, you would have been locked in here overnight inside this big warehouse where the bus was kept. And he gave me a ride to the hotel. Well, I walk in the hotel, I go up to my room and I'll tell you, I almost beat the shit out of my roommate because I go, oh, yeah, you guys are really funny. eh? Like you thought that was pretty funny. Uh, needless to say, uh, uh, it was uh, it was quite the prank for sure. Well, on, we're on I that. Imagine, I would imagine. I would imagine when you woke up, you probably just were in shock. Like, I'm, like where the hell am oh, I? Oh God, yeah. Like it was. And of course, you're in Chicago. You know, one of the worst. There's some pretty bad areas oh, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, because it would have been. It well. it would, that warehouse was not in a nice in a nice part of the city oh, no. for sure. <laughs> well, who are some of the other characters that you play with? Well, we usually say this, but the pranksters, you might as well get into this, some of the other pranksters you play with and maybe some of the uh, escapades they pulled on guys. Well, you know, uh, I mean, you know, it's funny. Barry Melrose was a funny guy, right? Uh, I'll never the first year squid member. We, we went to Detroit and we played New Year's Eve and we got back and we got back to Toronto before midnight. And, uh, you know, the girlfriends and wives, whatever, were at the hotel and uh, we, we had a, a room where we were having a party and, and Barry Melrose, I remember putting his, taking his teeth out and putting him inside the glass of Wendy Sittler's uh, drink. And she goes to take a drink of her glass and she almost, she almost got him in her mouth and whatever. And she was so appalled. It was crazy. Uh, but uh, I mean, I mean, so many different guys, like, you know, I mean, the old, you know, putting uh, the, the baby powder inside the hair dryer, and I'll never yeah. forget the one day where Mr. Ballard, uh, you know, gets yeah. his before practices having a shower and all this stuff, and, and he's then there toweling off, and he's got wrapped up, and he goes to dry his hair, and he turns on the blow dryer, and it was this big, like a huge puff of smoke, and he had baby powder everywhere and whatever, and, and actually it was kind of like, he actually laughed his ass off about it. He thought oh, it was yeah, I did. Oh. Well, that uh, was Russ and Wendell. 
Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, uh, hey, Bobby, uh, you got the captain one night. Eric. Were you part of that one when they got him with on the brand new shoes with the uh, mustard and that, and he he lost his mind? Oh yes, the old shoe tech trick for sure. Hey, you know what? One of the funnier things, Ricky Vibe. Uh, the first when we played in Chicago, it was uh, year number two in Chicago, in the first year of Mike Keenan coaching. And we, after a couple of losses in a row, we had a skate the next day and it was like, uh, no pucks were involved and it was the bag skate. And uh, Mr. Vive there seized up. <laughs> he was like, his, he was having cramps in his legs and whatever. And it was like, we thought we were gonna have to carry him off the ice and down the stairs to get to the locker room. And, and I mean, he certainly wasn't laughing about it, that's for sure, but uh, we all had a pretty good chuckle over that one. <laughs> you that was, one, no, no, I mean, it did happen, but one of the reasons we had groups at both ends and we had to go down and back and Keenan was making a skate and uh, Denny Savard, he was in my group. He wouldn't stop. He would turn at the other end. So we'd get back, he'd say, go again. So we went like about, I don't know, 12 times in a row. And then finally <laughs> Doug Wilson grabbed him and threw him up against the end boards and said, stop when we get to this end so we don't have to go every time. Well, and didn't so far go and I gotta tell you, I, I was on the ice and my legs were hurting so bad. <laughs> I don't know, it was probably the worst I've ever cramped up. And, and I cramped up a lot when I played because I, I sweated a lot. And uh, I remember, you know, several games lost like 14 pounds. You put a lot of it back on overnight, but uh, but boy, oh boy, that was uh, those were the severest cramps I think I've ever had. <laughs> well, speaking of Chicago boys, let's get let's get into that. 1987. You're both part of what has been called one of the worst trades in Maple Leaf history. You two, along with Stevie Thomas, go for Secord and uh, Eddie Olchuk. Squid, I know you were caught off guard by the trade. Bobby, what about you? Um, well, I mean, I I wasn't. I mean, I was kind of I, I was I was excited about it uh, just because. Um, you know, the year before when, you know, John Brophy was the coach, uh, you know, I mean, I, I like Brophy he was a good, nice, great guy and whatever, but you know, he, he thought I was the guy that just went when, when we were down five, one, he was come over and tap me on the shoulder and say, get out there and do stuff and whatever. And, and I wasn't a big fan of that. So, uh, uh, you know, I was hoping to, to, uh, get an opportunity to go somewhere else. Uh, so when the trade happened, uh, I was pretty pleased about it. And especially because Chicago, uh, I mean, I, I loved playing in the old Chicago stadium because of that small rink and uh, there was no place better to play than that place. So uh, we loved it when we played for the Maple Leafs, we owned that building. We used to go in there and win all the, all the time. And, uh, and to be able to go and play 40 games a year there as the home team, I'll tell you, uh, I spent four years in Chicago and it was, uh, it was quite, time i mean a couple of conference finals in 89 and 90 and then we won a president's trophy in 91 uh it was uh, a fantastic place uh, i loved playing there and uh, uh you know what i'm sure uh, ricky's got lots of good uh, good times from there too great yeah it was uh it, it was pretty good i mean when i when the trade happened it was disappointing because i wanted to stay in toronto i i was happy my you know i was establishing a family and everything and uh, I think our youngest, our oldest boy was born, was uh, already born. Yeah, he was. So, I yeah. mean, it, it kind of it disrupted everything, and it was kind of like a, 
uh, you know, a, a little bit of a kick in the pants. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, then you look at it and you go, okay, I get to play in the Chicago Stadium, though. And then ironically, like we get traded there and Bobby gets traded with us and Secord goes the other direction. And the year prior to that, Bobby pretty much almost single-handedly by taking him out of the, out of the series, we beat Chicago and swept them because like he was so rattled because Bobby was in his, in his head, the whole series and Secord never played very well in that series, mainly because Bobby was in his, his grill the whole series. And, uh, and then we ended up going to Chicago, great building to play in. You can't ask for a better building to play in. And the first year went well. And then all of a sudden Mike Keenan came in and decided that, okay, I got to move these four guys. I got to. Well, I was going to say, Bobby, after four years, you get selected by San Jose in the expansion draft. Now you've gone from a hockey up in Toronto to an original six team in Chicago, another good hockey city from that standpoint, must've been a bit of an eye opener coming from those two markets to San Jose. Yeah. You know what, uh, Mike, it was, uh, you know, you went from, from, from the penthouse to, uh, to the bottom of the rung. Right. And yeah. uh, it was, it was difficult, you know, and, and I think the biggest thing was, you know, uh, the first year when I went there, you know, they, they, they talked about right from day one, a training camp that, you know what, we're not going to use expansion as a crutch. And so we got outworked different, everybody and different things and whatever. And, you know, you just, you got to remember, I just finished playing three years with Mike for Mike Keenan and I'll tell you, uh, and, 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 and you know what, Hey, Ricky, remember the first time we met Mike Keenan at training camp in the hotel, the first speech that he had with everybody there, he said, hard work. You have no idea what hard work is. And you know what? He was right because, and anybody who ever played for Mike Keenan, the one thing you learned is that your training habits, everything just went like through the, like, and uh, because it was all about the work. Well, when I went to San Jose and, you know, again, we, we went to the conference finals in 89 with Keenan his first year. Then we went to the conference finals in 90. We lost to Edmonton. Then we won the president's trophy. We ended up losing in the first round, but then the Hawks went to the finals the next year, but go to San Jose. And it was like, it was a freaking country club compared to what I was used to. And, and we were, you know, and, and you never won because I mean, you, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, obviously not like uh, you look at the Vegas Golden Knights and now this year coming in the Seattle crack and uh, yeah. they're going to get the, they, they, the, the expansion draft where the, the, the opportunity for the type of player you're going to pick are much, much different from way back in those days. And uh, so you get instantly a pretty decent hockey club, uh, whereas uh, it was always the scratch and claw for the first two, three, five years for to gain some respectability for expansion teams. And, uh, you know, in San Jose, I didn't la- I got traded at the trade deadline the first yeah. year. I, I went from worst to first. I went to, to Detroit in the, in the, in, in, at the, the trade deadline. I got traded to Detroit and, uh, and obviously was uh, uh, probably a crazy thing, too, because that was I just spent the previous 10 years uh, on the number one hated list of the Detroit Red Wings from <laughs> six years in Toronto and four years in uh, Chicago, uh, where they absolutely hated me and me carrying my bag in and walking into that locker room. I'll tell you, it was the most surreal feeling I ever had in my career. <laughs> that, that is very true. You got to think about it that way. Those old Norris division days. Oh, now, boy. you bet. Thinking about that, 
uh, Squid and I have talked about this in the past. Those teams you have between 85 and 87, Squid, you know where I'm going with this one. Two things here, Bobby. Number one, what was missing to take that team to the next level? And just to give you an idea, Wendell Clark has said to us, and he actually said it to Rick Dossal, started at a golf tournament, that he thought those teams between 85 and 87 were deeper yep. and better than the 92, 93 teams, even going so far as to say with Pat Burns at the helm, those teams, your teams, would have gone further. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting because, I mean, hey, we were two years in a row. We were game seven, right? And, uh, I mean, I'll never forget that first year in 86. We beat Chicago in three straight in that best of five. And then the second round, game seven, St. Louis, we lose two to one. And I'll tell you exactly because I was on the ice. Uh, Kevin Lavallee scored the game-winning goal to make it 2-1 with about about eight minutes left in the game and we couldn't we couldn't tie it and so we bowed down to them and then obviously I think the the one that hurt even worse though was the next year and uh, after uh, after we beat St. Louis in the first round we played Detroit in game in uh, the second round and we were up three games to one and uh, we lost three straight and uh, I tell you that was a real tough pill to swallow no question about it and I mean I just think uh, in, in both of those series, I mean, it's such a fine line, right? I mean, Absolutely. game seven, the first year, if you have one ounce of luck where, you know, you, know, you win that game, we're, we were we were packed and we were ready to jet off to Edmonton for the conference finals. And uh, uh, the next year, uh, same situation where you're against Detroit. And, uh, you know, the big thing that happened in that in that last series against the Red Wings our, our, we couldn't score a goal, even strength. I don't think we scored a goal, even strength the last three games. And uh, uh, the Red Wings shut us down. They found a way to do it. And uh, that was so tough to, tough to take because, uh, you know, it was like you finally thought like after, I mean, think of what was going on in Leafs Nation, right? Like, oh my gosh, it was yeah. like, I mean, people were just delirious, right? And, uh, and then I was fortunate to be, you know, come back to the Leafs and uh, I was on that team in 92, 93. I didn't play because I broke my jaw in March and uh, didn't play in the playoffs at all. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, like, how, how, how disheartening was that one after the Gretzky high stick and then him scoring the, the overtime winner to, uh, to put it to game seven. And then he gets a hat trick in game seven. Like, it was like uh, unfathomable, right, that, uh, uh, that they were gonna, he was going to do that as everybody thought that was going to be the year because uh, we actually played so good against uh, uh, the Canadians during during the regular season, we thought that we were going to be rolling along and uh, we're maybe going to, uh, you know, capture the Stanley Cup for the first time since 67. And obviously it's been another 27 or eight years since. So, yikes. <laughs> Fred, you can add, you can actually add to that also. Well, it's just Wendell and I were talking one, one time at an event and uh, we were having something to eat. And he said, and I, I asked him, I said, it, how was it in 92 and 93? I said, it must've been pretty darn awesome. I said, the place, the city must've been going crazy. And he, he said, Oh, absolutely. He said, it was, it was wild. He said, but you know what, Squid? He said, in 85, 86 and 87, we probably had better teams than we did in 92 and 93, but we, there was just no direction. And he said, we, we had better players. And I thought, wait a minute, I, he must be crazy. 
But I went back and I at home that night and I checked the rosters from those two yep. seasons and 92, 93. And I went, God, you know what? He's right. He said, we didn't have better players. We just didn't have the direction. And uh, somebody that could steer us in the right direction, a coach or a general manager that made that, that move at the deadline that put us over the hump or that sort of thing. And yep. uh, I think that's the reason why we weren't successful. Well, and you look at where coaching has gone, right? I mean, oh my God, yeah. like, it's just, it's amazing, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, just, uh, I mean, even just look at kids hockey, like, gosh, well, you, you know, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, just things have changed where so uh, everything's uh, under the microscope and, and break down this, that, and whatever. And I mean, it's just changed so dramatically, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, having a, a innovative, uh, a different coach maybe could have certainly made a huge difference. Who knows for sure. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. We, we, well, though, somebody had, that... had Dan, I mean, Danny Maloney, Hey, remember his first year, we finished last in the yeah. league. And then the next year, I think he learned a big lesson. And that's when we went to the, the you know, we, we went to the second round that year. And then the next year, I thought we really you know, took another step. And then Mr. Ballard didn't want to, didn't want to sign him to, to a new contract. And it was like, are you kidding me? And we finally got something going here and they bring in Brof. And I mean, you know, Brof just, I mean, hey, God rest his soul. Uh, but Brof was... Uh, I mean, there was no, it was just like <laughs> dump the puck in and, and, and beat the crap out of everybody, man. That's what he wanted to do. It was like, and. Well, was, like I, I've told people, Bobby, that I think if Brolf had to come in 15 years earlier, he might've had more success because yep. he was just a, he was a raw, raw guy. He was like, you know, one of those guys that, uh, you know, motivates you and, and, and toughness was a big thing. And, yep. you know, back 15 years earlier, yep. I think he would have had success, but systems and, and video and everything was coming into the national hockey. He was already kind of there. And, but Brof wasn't that type of guy. He wasn't that type of coach. And well, therefore very, he very couldn't. Few were. <laughs> no, that's right. There, there weren't that many. And, uh, but certainly Brof wasn't, that's for sure. And poor Danny. I mean, he finally got, you know, figured it out after a horrible year, changed his views on things. We just got things rolling. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The same thing usually happened in Toronto. Ballard wouldn't spend the money to sign. Yeah. 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 No hey, but were you in the room the night that uh, Brophy turned the lights out in the dressing room? Said, you guys are going to sleep on the ice. Might as well sleep in here, too. Oh, yeah. The sure I was there. Yeah. Yes, I was. Yeah. Boys love those stories. Uh, if you got any that come to mind of uh, Mr. Brophy, the boys have shared some good ones with us. Well, uh, you know, it just, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> I mean, he came up with some lines where, I mean, I mean that, that night you're talking, that was in, in, uh, in Bloomington, Minnesota, was it not? <laughs> they didn't say where they just said he did. It was like <laughs> Lehman and uh, Cortnell told us that story. But you know, like, I mean, you know, I mean, he had some great lines when he was, when he was, when he was pissed, uh, boy, he had some lines and, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, the, he is the one line on Steve Thomas. It's only 70 miles to St. Catharines, but it's 7,000 miles back. And, <laughs> and just, <clears throat> he would, 
And, you know, I mean, and I, and I, you know, cause I, I coached against Brof when I, when I coached in the ECHL uh, years, years later, obviously. And I mean, anytime you had John Brophy away from the rink, I'll tell you, he was such a great guy. Uh, it just, you, as soon as he walked into the arena, that intensity, just like, and the, the teeth bit down and whatever. And he was, it just it was all or nothing and uh and it's too bad because if he uh you know and 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 you're right i mean his style of coaching uh certainly because i mean he won championships at different levels no question about it uh because there was that intimidation factor at other levels too but at the national hockey league level it didn't uh, didn't go go as well obviously as players didn't didn't like uh, uh, the fact that uh, the way he approached the game that's for sure but uh, you know what he was quite a character that is darn sure he tried to fight squid he was, and uh, bobby did he ever want to well, hold on, Bobby. Did he ever want to fight you when you coached against him? <laughs> no, no, he didn't. Like, no, I only, only, I only got to well, play against him uh, uh, in two games. So that was you, know, you were in the same division as him. So that that yeah. would, would have been a lot different. <laughs> well, it was funny because I put Dan Fornell on the ice, and Dan played regular for us. He was a pretty good player, but he was tough as nails too. And I forget who his tough guy was. So he puts his tough guy out, and they end up fighting, and our guy beats the hell out of his guy and he wants to fight me and he said you put your tough guy out to fight Michael no he, he plays regular shifts I said you put your guy out after I did because we're playing in his building he's got a lot of shame yeah and he's halfway around the glass he wants to fight me and I'm going what the hell are you doing bro <laughs> you old bastard I said get back in your bed I said we're not gonna fight <laughs> well you know it's it was crazy it's interesting uh uh, in 2012, the Marlies uh, went to the Calder Cup Finals against the Norfolk Admirals, which was Tampa's farm team. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, John Cooper was the head coach. And actually, Stumpy was assistant coach <clears throat> at the time. And uh, uh, you walk into the rink in, in, in Norfolk, Virginia. And oh, my gosh, there is a mural up hanging in the rafters of John Brophy because he was an absolute legend there from when he oh, coached he the, the ECHL team in Norfolk for sure. And uh, uh, you know what? Uh, and it, it, I just had such a great chuckle seeing that and just thinking about him. And uh, uh, you know, it really did my heart so good uh, when you guys uh, did the tour out in Nova Scotia uh, to play those games and you guys stopped in Anaganish at the old folks home and you stopped in and and everybody and ally afraidy and fergie and a bunch of you guys danny do all stopped and spent some time with brof there uh that was just like uh when i heard that it was just like man that was the, the greatest thing i ever heard yeah no it, well i wasn't on that trip but i know i i heard all about it and then of course al filled me in and uh i mean he said brof was in pretty bad shape i guess at, at that point in time but he said they, they sat in the room and they talked and he said they, they had a real good time and it was, they said it was so good to see him again. And that was, you know, not that far, I guess, before he passed away, I think. So, yeah. uh, so it was kind of nice for them to see him. And uh, he said, make sure you say hello to all the guys back in Toronto and everything. And then, yeah. you know, <laughs> he was so happy that the guys stopped in and saw him. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, for sure. Now, Bobby, uh, going back sort of as your, your career is starting to take off, was there a certain player you tried to model yourself after 
sort of the way he prepared, prepared for a game, carried himself off the ice, dealt with the highs and lows of the game, just being a real pro? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, it was like just one of those, like I was a big, I mean, obviously growing up, I was, you know, I played defense because I was a Bobby Orr fan, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, uh, I remember watching Keith Magnuson and, you know, he was always that gamer kind of guy. And, you know, he, he always seemed to be on the wrong end of it <laughs> at the end of the night. Uh, but uh, he was such a, such a terrific guy. And, uh, and then I remember when I met him in Chicago, when we first went there, uh, you know, he was, uh, I had met him previously. Uh, he was he was came to watch me play in Victoria uh, with Bob Pulford, and they were scouting uh, uh, when we were in the playoffs. I think my first year in Victoria, and uh, he introduced himself. So I kind of uh, uh, you know he was a guy that I I wanted to be, sort of be that you know I wanted to be that guy because he you know he was never wanted to let the other guy know you were hurt, right? You didn't want the, the trainer uh, to have to come out and help you get off the ice. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, you, uh, you see guys who just, you know, can block shots and do this and that and always get up and get off the ice. But, uh, you know, being uh, just, uh, you, you know, I don't know if I picked one player that I wanted to emulate, but you just wanted to be, you know, it was all, to me, it was always about the team and uh, you know, whatever you had to do to stick up for teammates and to, to make sure that uh, you know, whatever you did, it was all about trying to help the team win games. And uh, you know, that was something where, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I got along with all my teammates because uh, you know, I think that I tried to do my best to look after them and, and make sure that they felt good about going out there knowing that no one was going to take advantage of them well one of the things you know, I was the funny say, thing that's oh, yeah, great go go well the funny thing is the division that we played in when you think back to, to those years in toronto like we really didn't have that many tough guys and all the other teams in our division probably had three or four like really tough guys so yeah. i mean you had yourself uh, we Magsy was there for a little bit. Wendell, when he came in, guys that would fight the tough guys in the league. Other than that, I mean, we didn't really, uh, you know, I think that was probably one of the reasons why we didn't do so well in that division is because we didn't have the toughness that the other teams had. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a reason why they called it the Chuck Norris division, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you, there was uh, plenty of battles for sure. And, and uh, you know, it's funny because I, uh, they, they used to have this, this site that somebody was telling me about the one time, you know, dropyourgloves.com. And they, they go through and they tell you about every, all the fights you had in junior and, and American League and the NHL and whatever. And I mean, and they had, and I was like, well, I kind of looked there the one day and I had 189 fights in the National Hockey League. And, uh, you know, it's like to think of a guy like Ty Domi, I think he's got the record, 333 fights. And I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to think uh, that Ty, you know, fought that many times at his size. Uh, mind you, hey, I mean, hey, I, I mean, my, I mean, 
I played at 190 pounds, right? So it's like, not like I was uh, some big imposing guy, right? But uh, you're right. I mean, uh, every team had some tough guys and and I think there would be, it was intimidating for different players at different times, you know, <clears throat> as the, as the, uh, the way the ebbs and flows of the NHL where the toughness factor came in and that intimidation factor, uh, you know, became pretty evident uh, in certain eras of the game for sure. Well, I was going to say to you, Ricky just touched on it with the toughness of that Norris division. So you, you, you've answered that. So the next part of my question to you is going to be, those are real fights. Like you guys are fighting because the guys really wanted to fight. So maybe take us through the <laughs> latter years in your career where guys are maybe challenging you to make themselves look good in front of the coach because they're going after Bob McGill because he's a name guy. He's a name guy who can fight, make me look better. Did you, you must have chuckled at some of that as you were going well, along. Oh yeah. And you know, it's interesting because, you know, you know, Hey, I'm six one. And, and I played like my first year, I was a, I was a bit of a, 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 a bit of a butterball, <laughs> I guess you could say. I, I, I was probably two Oh five. And then, and then going to my second year uh, in the summertime, I got my training camp uh, uh, envelope for training and stuff. And in red felt pen, it said, uh, Bob report to training camp at 190 pounds and <clears throat> I hadn't been 190 pounds since I was probably 13 years old so I was like oh man I don't know how I'm going to do this but I came into camp and from that day that my from start of my second year the rest of my career I played I played between 188 and 192 and uh, you know and and you know when you're going up against some of these guys like you know if, you know, like fighting Probert, like I fought him six times and, you know, he's six three, two twenty, or whatever he was and, and whatever. And then later on in my career, yeah, all the new guys coming into the league, you had these new tough guys come in. They were six, two, three, four, and they were two twenty, thirty, two four. It was like, I was like, Hey man, like, I ain't like, <laughs> it's like, uh, if I got to fight him, I'll fight him, but I ain't going to be going out looking for to fight those guys. Let me tell you, <laughs> it was like, uh, I wasn't the guy that was going to be going, Hey, I'm going to make my mark on you. Uh, because they, I, it was crazy how big and, and strong some of these guys yeah. were. And, uh, you know, and it's amazing to see just how the game has changed on, on even the small guys today, you know, play at, you know, I mean, look at John Tavares, he plays at two fifteen. And I mean, you'd, you'd never yeah. know it, right? Because he, because of the muscle and 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 what they do with the, with the way the training has has evolved over the years. Uh, you know, all the players yeah. just they're bigger, stronger, faster. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I look at my youngest boy who's still playing in the ECHL. He played about two hundred and ninety games in the American League. And the training that he does in the offseason, I mean, he's 6'6", 245 pounds, and he's probably <laughs> about 8% body fat, you know, and I, and I look at him and I go, wow, if I, if, if I was that size and could go back for one year in that Norris division <laughs> and kick the shit out of all those guys that <laughs> beat the hell out of me, it would yeah. be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it would be one of the... It or would even, be one just to have that size and play in the national yeah. league, like if I could do what I did as a player, imagine how to have that size and play at the, you know, at the same, the same way I played, but only bigger. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, hey, hey. you'd be doing one of these ones. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you bear, yeah, if I was 6'6", 240, I'd be putting the belt on for sure. <laughs> well, I was going to say to you, Bob, what are some of the funnier lines you heard over the years from guys when it like before somebody trying to challenge you, some of the best chirps you've maybe heard from a guy to get you to drop them? Oh, well, you know, I mean, that was one thing, uh, Mike, you know what, I, uh, you know, even, you know, when I hear today, like, you know, in the game, the how over the years, you know, I mean, because this is like 20 years, 28 years yeah. since I've retired from playing, right? I mean, the game has changed so much. And, but uh, like, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, I remember the coach was, would say, oh, you know, I don't want you to fight tonight, whatever, blah, blah, blah. If I had a player come up to me and said, hey, let's go, whatever. I was like, mm, I never, I wouldn't be like, oh, no, my coach told me I can't fight tonight. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, whatever. Maybe the next time. It's like, you know what? I'm not turning it down because I'm, I'm you know, that that's who I am, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and it's crazy because when I was in Chicago <clears throat> back in uh, 90, 1991, uh, the year that we lost in after winning the President's Trophy, that was the year Minnesota beat us in the first round and Minnesota went all the way to the finals. John Casey was in goal for them. Uh, Bob Ganey was coaching, uh, you know, I mean, they had a good team, but it was, that was the year where that's when the fighting stopped in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And it was like Shane Churla, Basil McRae, they'd come up. Oh yeah. Oh, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. You drop your gloves and they turtle and you got a two minute penalty and they go in the power play and they score a power play goal, win the game. And it was like, Oh my gosh. And that's, and that, that was the year. That's when things all of a sudden, when uh, the fighting stopped in the playoffs and, uh, and that was the start of the way things you know, continued to change and go from there. Uh, but, um, you know, as far as myself was concerned, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, if I was challenged by somebody, I, uh, I always ob obliged and uh, uh, because I, I was just felt that it was one of those things where uh, I didn't want to think that uh, somebody would want to call me, somebody was going to call me a pussy or whatever. So, <laughs> well, I remember there's a story about Domi going after Probert. So the first time he lined up beside him and he hadn't fought him before, he was like, Hey, give a kid a shot at the belt. Give a kid a shot at the belt, and yeah. give a kid a shot. And Robert was, "I fight you. You're a little shit. I'm not fighting you. You're a little guy." He goes, "Come on, come on, come on. Just give me a shot. I got to look good. Give me a shot. Give me a shot. Give me a shot." Ah, uh, yeah, all right. So yeah, he fights him. So they fight, and they kind of hits him and lets him have a few shots. And Robert yeah. kind of eases off on him a little bit. Domi does the, you know, this going to yeah, the. Oh no, I know. I've seen, I've seen those fights like oh more than once. Let me tell you. Uh, and Probert went crazy. He goes, you little fucking so-and-so, okay. you're doing showing me up like that. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then he oh, went, yeah. that's when the battle, the, the belt oh, yeah. started. Stevie Eiserman up in the, in the bench doing the, doing the belt thing for Proby <laughs> after the fight. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Now, who was one of the most underrated players you ever played with that didn't get enough recognition? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, that's an easy one for me. Uh, the, the, the most underrated player I ever played with, uh, uh, to me, was hands down Steve Larmer. And, well, where have we heard that before? 
And I'll tell you, because to me, uh, you know, I, I remember, I mean, obviously uh, when Secord and, and Savard and, and Larmer played on a line together, well, and when we played against Chicago, I got to play against that line because they always wanted me matched up against, against Secord. Uh, so I saw a lot of Steve Larmer and I always thought, hey, man, this guy's a freaking good player, man, like holy cow. And then when I got to Chicago to see what he did on a day-to-day -day basis uh, was phenomenal to see. And I, I got to think that uh, uh, in the not too distant future, uh, he's going he's gonna to end up in the Hall of Fame. He's got over a point a game in his career. He played 1,012 yeah. games. I think he's got 1,016 points. And, uh, and if he would, he, I think he's got 400 and 465 goals or whatever it is. But uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, hey, Ricky, he is the only winger that I ever played with in my whole career. That when you came back to the bench and you gave him, I'd step out from, from behind the net and I'd give him a direct pass. He would, he'd come back to the bench and he would chirp at me. What the hell are you doing? I told you, put it around the boards. He wanted, he wanted to pass around the boards because he was a left shot, played right wing. He always liked to pick yeah. it up on his forehand as it came around the boards. Cause if the D man was pinching, he'd step in and then he'd be able to protect the puck and then hit Savard curling in and away they'd go. And you'd give him a direct pass where he'd have to pick it up on his backhand. He would, he would blow a gasket on you on the bench, <laughs> but uh, to play with Larms for four years, uh, I mean, he's still a good friend today. I chat with him. Uh, you know, we, we chat not, not, not weekly or monthly, but you know, three or four times a year we chat. And uh, uh, to me, he was the most underrated player I ever played with. Cause I'll tell you, he was so good. And uh, you know, he won a Canada cup and then he won a cup with the Rangers. Uh, I really think that, uh, you know, he was a special player, no question. And, and a more special guy. It's great. Yeah, I got, you know, I, fortunately I got to play with him and Dennis when we got traded to Chicago. And because uh, Larm switched to the left side, and I got to tell you, he's a, he's the guy that uh, whenever I'm asked that question, hands down, he is my pick for the most underrated player in the NHL. And I, I said not, uh, just recently on one of our shows, I said I can't believe that he's not in the Hall of Fame already. Yeah, I well, mean, and I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure I'm sure it's going to happen, but yeah. Well, Bobby, we want to well, thank. I, you. I hope so. Go ahead. It's great. Yeah, I, yeah. Hope, I hope so, because he certainly deserves it. Yeah. Bobby, I want to thank you for being with us for so long, but just a couple more minutes just to, before we let you go on your way. Everybody's going to get ready for the game tonight. Your new job in the world of um, media, behind the camera for a change. How did that all come about? Oh, gosh, man. If you can believe this, this is year number 16, uh, working for uh, Leafs Nation Network and uh, – uh, you know what? It's, uh, it's hard to believe that uh, if you would have told me 16 years ago that I'd be doing this this long, uh, I would have laughed for sure. Uh, but uh, you know what? Uh, I, I, uh, I just, uh, they had a, a life after hockey program through the NHL Alumni Association. And they had a broadcasting course where you could go down to Quinnipiac College University down in, in, down in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a week long thing. And I went down to it. And, uh, uh, you know, they obviously, uh, you know, talked about uh, getting involved, doing different things. And Leafs, Leafs TV at the time, uh, they were going to be starting 
doing uh, uh, Toronto Marley's broadcasts. Uh, so uh, I, I got a hold of John Shannon and uh, gave him a call and asked him if I could have an opportunity. And uh, uh, that was way back uh, in the day. That was the, the year of the lockout uh, that, the, that the, the season was lost. The American League played that year. And uh, uh, Ricky Vive was uh, the color guy. And uh, I was uh, uh, on the on the sidelines. And then uh, obviously uh, uh, it went it went uh, from there to uh, uh, to to getting involved uh, doing the, the color. And uh, I've been doing that for many years now. And here we are uh, in year 16 as the Marlies are getting set to wind down uh, their last uh, eight or nine games of the regular season this year. And uh, and the Maple Leafs, uh, you know, did pre and post game shows for so many years. And a lot of that is, uh, uh, you know, since, uh, since uh, Sportsnet, uh, you know, took over the, that contract with the National Hockey League, uh, you know, the competition, they didn't want to have uh, uh, different things interfering with their uh, different uh, programming. So uh, we've had stuff that sort of fall into the wayside and uh, don't do as much, but uh, certainly uh, uh, we keep our finger on the pulse of Leaf Nation and uh, uh, we do a good morning Leafs Nation the day of a game uh, for every game and we do a, a count down to puck drop a show as well and uh, uh it's still a lot of fun no question about it and uh and boy oh boy with uh, eight games to play in the regular season here for the toronto maple leafs uh sitting atop the north division or the uh, sorry north the north division uh, <laughs> uh, yeah no kidding we were talking about it so much uh, a little slip a up to make uh, but uh, with them being the top dog, I, I think the thing that has impressed me the most about the Toronto Maple Leafs this year has been the fact that, you know, how many times uh, during the course of the year where the team that's they're going into enemy territory on the road, whether it was in Edmonton, whether it was in Montreal, whether it was in Winnipeg, uh, uh, on a couple of different occasions where Winnipeg or Edmonton or, or, or Montreal was right on their tail and them, them licking their chops going, Oh, we've got them in our building. Uh, we're going to, we're going to have a chance to, to leapfrog them and be the first place in the North division. And they've impressed me because every time they've had those games, they've gone in, not only won, won a couple, they've won every single one. They went three and oh, quite in Edmonton. They went two and oh, both times in Winnipeg, uh, you know, and, and here they got now Montreal four times in the next six games. And yeah. they, they, they could uh, seriously cramp uh, the style of uh, Montreal, uh, you know, making the playoffs or clinching a playoff spot if they were to uh, uh, win, win three or four of those games. Uh, but uh, on one hand, you want to see them do it to knock them out the Canadians. Wouldn't that be special? But on the other hand, you want to see a Toronto Montreal matchup in the playoffs because that hasn't oh, yes. happened since 1978, I think. Yes. Or 79. It's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I think Bobby, the biggest thing for me this year is that the thing for me this year is that if you look at, you know, what Kyle Dubas did in the off season and then at the, at the trade deadline, I think he gave the, and, and every player, when you're playing in the national league, you always want your general manager to say, okay, I got you the necessary pieces yep. to get us to the Stanley cup final now it's up to you. And I think he's done that. Yeah. I think the players really appreciate that. So, you know, when you, when you're watching them, they, I think they're aware of what their general manager did. 
Yes, they are. And uh, you know what? You look at the group, the cohesiveness, uh, you know, I mean, it's a team that is together. They're together, which I think is is such a huge, important factor. And when when you make deals at the deadline, you got to think of the chemistry of the hockey club and all those things. And I think Kyle Dubas was masterful at uh, getting the guys in that he did. And, uh, and I think, as you said, the players appreciate that they're doing stuff uh, to help put the club over the top and boy oh boy wouldn't that be special if 